Hello. Is there such thing as toxic masculinity? And is testosterone a poisonous toxin? Let's discuss. Welcome to the Forge and Anvil podcast, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I'm host of this podcast. Today, I wanted to talk about manhood and masculinity. We live in a culture that is oftentimes overtly against masculinity altogether, and these conversations oftentimes are not had in a very healthy spaces. This has caused many men to retreat to small subcultures and find sometimes controversial figures to actually guide them through manhood. Oftentimes, they will even retreat into themselves and avoid talking altogether. Authors like John Eldridge have voiced concerns that the church has hurt masculinity as well and have raised a generation of men who are dutiful, detached from their heart, and bored. My goal for today is at least to scratch the surface of this topic with a guest who has a lot of experience with these conversations, Will Spencer from Renaissance of Men. So, Will, say hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm the founder of the Renaissance of Men. It's a podcast. So I um, I found, I, I didn't start the Renaissance of Men. Let me put it this way. I observed it. And the Renaissance of Men is a 40-year process to uh, rebirth masculinity. It's been happening. It's been happening for four decades, since the 1980s. And I found my way into this larger process called the Renaissance um, in the 2000s and um, through exploring the teachers and the authors and the books and then eventually the videos, I was able to transform my life as a man. And then I set out to tell more men about uh, the Renaissance because I think men need to know that something so significant and so big has been going on for so long. And so my podcast is to interview the leaders and the authors and the speakers and the content creators that are really making it go and driving the dialogue in, in multiple different ways. And then I also have a men's coaching business, men's mentorship business, and um, and men's groups as well, as long as the content, as well as the content creation I do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, tell me more about uh, Renaissance of Men. Um, first of all, where did you get the name? The Renaissance of Men was um, what I called this thing that I observed um, because I had I had read so many of these different books and I had been to retreats and I was watching videos and and I observed that um, all these different all these different uh, kind of themes came up in waves. So you mentioned John Eldridge. And John Eldridge was actually writing, I believe, in the late 90s was when yeah. he wrote Wild at Heart. But before him, there were these authors uh, called the Mythopoetic Men's Movement, um, Robert Bly and uh, Douglas Gillette. Along with them was another man named Warren Farrell. And so I read all these books, which were all in the 80s and the 90s. And then I observed the way that the dialogue changed as you move from the 80s and 90s into the 2000s, into the 2010s. And then up until 2020, which is when I, I coined the name. And it was almost like there was this process that was happening to build a bunch of different ideas together as men were rediscovering what it meant to be a man. And then what, what was going to come out on the other side of that was this renewed understanding, this rebirth of masculinity. And so I remember thinking that, well, it's a little bit like there's no leader of this. There's no one guy who's driving the whole driving the whole thing. Like Jordan right. Peterson is of course very popular, 
but he wasn't driving the thing. He was just one, one part of it. And you had all these different content creators. And I, I got to thinking that it's a little bit like another historical uh, movement, like the Italian Renaissance, which never didn't really have any one leader. And, and the leading lights of the Italian Renaissance weren't in competition with each other. It wasn't like Leonardo da Vinci competed with Michelangelo, competed with Titian, con competed with you know, uh, uh, Brutaleschi. They all did different things. And so they didn't compete with each other for anything other than mastery. And it was a little bit like this with all these different men. And so I, I found myself wondering, this is this historical process that doesn't have any leaders where everyone's pushing towards excellence. It's, it's like a, it's like a, a, a men's Renaissance. And so I came up with the term, the Renaissance of men. Hmm. Awesome. So as far as specifically your platform, hmm. um, you know, what's kind of the goal of Renaissance of men? There's lots of goals. <laughs> um, you know, the goal of the pro of the podcast was originally to let other people know that that the Renaissance was was going on. Hmm. But then I realized that, and this is it's fairly 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 obvious in retrospect that people don't think of it as a Renaissance. I'm the only guy hmm. thinking of it that way. So the goal became to propagate the idea of the Renaissance itself. And uh, the content creation, Twitter uh, and Instagram, particularly, and then on YouTube, are all uh, are all furthering that mission. But the thing is, I actually got into this business because I wanted to do I wanted to be a psychotherapist um, uh, and and counsel men because I've had my own transformation. I've done you know different retreats and modalities and and facilitation. But in 2020, when the world kind of melted down, I realized why would I spend three to five years in school to be a therapist here in Phoenix, where I live alone, um, and only be able to work in this area when there are millions of men around the world that I don't think need therapy. They need, they need uh, coaching, mentorship, and masculinity along the same lines of what I did. So I got into this to work one-on-one -on -one with men. So in addition to propagating this idea of the Renaissance as this larger collective process that we're in, I also do uh, men's mentorship programs, three-month men, men, men's mentorship programs. And then I've had my own life profoundly affected by men's groups. And so I host, I host men's groups for men to connect and share experiences with each other as well to sort of go from the highest level historical flows to the lowest level, like working with a guy on whatever challenge he's facing. And so I'm sort of all of those. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's... Uh... I think John Eldred's also um, is uh, is credited for saying that men men don't need more self help; they just need permission to be men. And it sounds like you're yes. slightly providing an avenue for that with some of your groups. Yes, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> that when John Eldridge was writing, excuse me, <clears throat> when John Eldridge was writing, I don't think uh, if that was in Wild at Heart. I don't think the problem was as far advanced as it is today because men right. need much more than permission. Hmm. You know, many men are, are they grew up without fathers or they're under fathered if they did have fathers. And so they not only need permission, they need permission, they need support, uh, they need encouragement, they need support, and they need to learn to trust themselves. And that's not always easy because everything in our society, everything in media says that, um, men and women are equal in all ways, but women are better. That's the message, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the, that's the double think of, of, um, 
I'm not even going to call it feminism anymore for anything other than a handy label. It's something much more than that now. But, you know, they have to unwire this idea that they're second-class citizens hmm. and that their natural desires are good. If they, if they want to be husbands and fathers and they want to lead a family, that that's okay. Yeah. And that, um, and that they have the, and that if they meet difficulty and they meet, um, misfortune and struggle that they can see their way through it if they just don't quit on themselves. And the thing that I'm noticing more than ever now is that men need to hear that they matter because mm -hmm. no one's ever told them. And this is, I mean, this theme keeps coming up over and over again. No one's ever told them that they matter. Yeah. Like, Hey, you're important and you're so important that you have to care for yourself. That, that idea is like, it's, I have, men will tell me it's really difficult for them to internalize the idea that they matter. Hmm. And that's, and, and that it's, so it's way more than just permission. I mean, I love yeah. John Eldridge and he's right, but oh, I think sure. it's much more than that now. Well, I completely agree with your assessment. Cause like you said, he was writing in the nineties and you yeah. know, when you think of the change that has happened from the nineties to 2022, there's yeah. a, it's a whole lot of that that's gone on in the past, you know, two and a half, three decades or so since wow, the three was years <laughs> written. Yeah. 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 And of course, to go off what you said, uh, the culture is not helping. Uh, recently, James Cameron, um, you know, who directed the Avatar movies and so many other movies that we consider to be great groundbreaking films recently described testosterone as a toxin Ridiculous. that men need to terminate from their system. So what was your reaction to that? <laughs> I had fun with that one. I mean, James Cameron, let's not forget, was the director of, you know, how many different Arnold Schwarzenegger movies? Terminator 1, Terminator 2, True Lies. Were there others? Addition to Aliens and um, The Abyss. These are hyper-masculine movies. I mean, yeah. now what James Cameron was brilliant at was crafting strong female characters who didn't overshadow the men like in the abyss at Harris's character's wife, Sarah Connor, right. Especially in Terminator two, um, Jamie Lee Curtis in, in true lies. These are excellent movies that are very high testosterone movies. And so the idea, the idea that James Cameron would say that testosterone is a toxin after he's made a billion dollars off of it. It's hypocrisy. It's pure hypocrisy. And no one's ever going to hold. The problem is, no one's going to hold him to account for that because if he really thinks it's, if he really thinks it's a toxin, pull all your films and donate all the money you made from it, Jim. How about that? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's so toxic that you give back your entire fortune. Oh no, you're happy to keep the money. Okay, sure. Got it. Okay. Happy to make yeah. money off you guys and then insult you. But sadly, he's not alone. Look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Arnold Schwarzenegger himself came over from Austria and became who knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars he made as a bodybuilder and then an mm -hmm. actor and an icon and a politician. And with three words, he wrecked his entire legacy. Screw your freedom. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. It's like, that was so, so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He, and, and here's, here's, um, here's, here's God's justice, right? So you spend your entire life making money, doing, making money off of freedom and then at the end of your life, when you're in your seventies and all your juice is gone and you're not, you know, your peak is passed, you you wreck your legacy with no ability to reconstruct it. I mean, that's mm. just, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a just act justness aspect to that as well. 
And same yeah. with Jim Cameron. I mean, he like Jim Cameron. I don't. This is the thing that doesn't make sense to me. I heard that Avatar two has to make two billion dollars to break even, and so he just <laughs> insulted half of the planet. Like, okay, yeah. good luck with that. Yeah, and we're already at a time where I don't think people are super keen on going to the movies too. So probably not the wisest move. But both of those men, you know, the, when you were talking there, I, I immediately just thought. Those are two men that they made it, and instead of reaching back and and reaching to the to the guy that's you know a step below them to give him a hand up, instead they're just trying to burn the ladder behind them so that no one else can make it to the top. Which is ironic because you know James Cameron is is coming out saying that testosterone is toxic, but you can you can argue that what he's doing is is a trait of an unhealthy man. You mm-hmm. know where where it's a very it's a very um, aggressive move to basically you know try to make it to where no one else can take the same path that he took that led to his success and that's mm. you know that's that's, that's really I, probably speaking of insecurities of his own oh yeah that's a wonderful observation you know even if even if we're taking it at face value that he said that he said it because he actually believes it versus what was put up to it to keep his job or whatever you know it's like now you scratch my back i scratch yours kind of the way that hollywood works if we take him at his word you're right he could very much be like you know testosterone is a toxin so no one can make these movies anymore it's like okay the last successful director right well i mean they're wrecking they're gonna wreck indiana jones now too so oh good good we need another one to be on the pike (laughs) yeah grief so with all this conversation i i do want to talk about toxic masculinity so um first i'll throw it to you do you believe in toxic masculinity uh yes but it's not what people think it is it's Mm. what people talk about is only half of the picture yeah yeah and i think that's uh that's kind of my thought too i i i think that there are some individuals that do a disservice to many women and um other men who have been wronged by what you and I would probably call toxic men um, by saying that toxic masculinity just doesn't exist period. And I think that's, that comes from a place of playing defense because obviously I think that guys like James Cameron, um, you know, are attacking manhood in general in ways that are completely uncalled for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think out of defense, there's almost an overcorrection that sometimes occurs where they say that there's no such thing as toxic masculinity. So I would consider toxic masculinity to be, you know, the kind of guy that's that's puffed up and, you know, ready to ready to brawl at the at the slightest sign of, um, you know, his insecurities being exposed. Um, Mm. I think that's toxic. Um, So I would definitely say that there is toxic masculinity. Um, I just wouldn't I I would say that um, that's not necessarily manly behavior, of course, Hmm. um, but it is technically, you know, something that would be testosterone filled or considered to be masculine, at least if we're talking what, you know, cultures defines as uh, being a masculine trait. So would you agree with my assessment? I do. Uh, And the word that I use and that I've heard used for that is uh, men who are macho. But, you know, that's the, that's, you know, toxic masculinity is, is some extreme degree of being, being macho. The problem with the term though, is that it's, it's only half of the picture because there's another kind of toxic masculinity. So, so the way that that term is often used is the man who is, let's say too forward, too aggressive, Mm -hmm. too assertive. And so, but that word is used to shame other men to say that this is what masculinity is. So what you get in response is you get men who shut themselves down completely and become passive and apathetic. That man, that passive and apathetic man 
is also toxic mm -hmm. because what the what the what the overly aggressive man does is he takes up all the space in the room and everyone's like whoa dude back yeah. down right okay but the man whose passive and apathetic drains the room of its vitality he contributes nothing and where whereas a man is supposed to come in and give energy to a room and be generative right bring in his masculine spirit to animate like when when a when a man walks into like a real man walks into a room you see everyone come to life right especially a, le a leader when a leader walks into a room everyone comes to life in a good way when you right. when you have a man who's passive and apathetic in that place instead the whole room's energy sinks and that's equally toxic so when men talk when people talk about toxic masculinity i say yes and there's a whole other ditch on the other side of the road that doesn't get talked about. And so um, the reason why that matters is because toxic masculinity is what I call a shaming weapon. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a rhetorical device that's been honed over decades, six or so decades, if not more, in feminist academia. Some of the, yeah. some of the smartest and most devious minds taking decades of feminist literature and whittling it down into a very fine point and then launching it through social media like Twitter mm. and Facebook and stuff. So it's a weapon. And yeah. what it's aimed to do with that phrase, aimed, toxic, masculinity is aimed, toxic masculinity is aimed to do is strike right at the heart of a man, make him ashamed for being a man. And yeah. it, it works. It's worked really well as a rhetorical weapon. It strikes these men and it shuts them down, which is what it's designed to do. And as long as you leave it there, then it's effective. But as soon as you point out a man being in that flattened state as a result of that, who is apathetic and weak, drains vitality of the room as being equally toxic. As long as you leave him there, there's no rebound. But if you let him know like, hey, when you stop in that spot, that's being toxic, you need to pick yourself up and discover what it really means to be a man, then that unwinds the whole thing and it puts you back on offense rather than defense. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. And it's it's like the, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's being circulated around so you know sure. maybe it's a bit corny but it's like the it's like the saying that uh um you know strong men create good times good times create weak men weak men create bad times bad times create strong men and you sure. know the cycle is ever continuing but that's that's the truth of what you're saying is now we sort of have this toxic apathy from men on the flip side of the toxic um you know bravado that we see yes but what what I try to do with the Renaissance of men as a value is I want to exit the cycle. I don't want to create strong men who create good times and, and keep that thing, that wheel turning. Mm -hmm. What I want to understand is the reason why the strong men created the good times, which is obviously a good thing is men didn't actually know what they were doing and why it was important. They were just mm. left. They were just left to do it. They let the yeah. flywheel of society run, right? Which is great, but the men didn't weren't self-reflective. In the past thirty years, forty years, there has been more writing about masculinity than ever before. Books, mm. videos, and content like it's insane the amount of reflection that's been done about what it means to be a man, unprecedented in history. And so my hope is with the renaissance of men that with all of that collective wisdom, we can move forward with a conscious understanding and a, an awareness of what it means to be a man and not be unself-reflective about it. 
and not let it go too far to where we're being irresponsible and creating this irresponsible good time, right? Where we know that these values need to be passed on because I think you can look at men of like the greatest generation, you know, uh, not necessarily boomers, but their fathers, they were being yeah. men, but they didn't know that that's what they were doing until their sons or their grandchildren became very much not men. So the idea is if we know what we're doing, we can actually pass those values along and never create those destructive good times. That's, that's that um, the notion where people can get spoiled and take it for granted. Right. That's what you don't want to have happen. It's not that good times are bad. It's that you don't pass along values that let people know, don't take this for granted. Right. Right. Well, it's kind of like our country's founders. You know, I think that they did a good job of creating good times that lasted for a long time. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that was because I think they were much more reflective. Whereas, you know, when you're talking about the greatest generation, like you said, that there was a evil that rose, um, you know, in, in the East and the men of the West had to had to go and meet that challenge. And it was just it was not much time for thinking, just time for action. And, you know, after the war, I think that there was a lot of of just um, going back to whatever the new normal was. And which was a time of relative peace. And I think that that very next generation, though, was not fully appreciative or fully understanding of what they inherited. And I think that we immediately moved into kind of the next phase. And, um, you know, a, a great book that I just read on that recently was uh, Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell mm. um, that talked a lot about America since the 60s. And it really goes on to a lot of when boomers kind of came into their prime where a lot of the deterioration kind of came about. And obviously I'm not, I'm not here to say that's all the boomers fault. It's every generation has their, has their um, contributions made both for good and, and for bad, but uh, right. either way. Um, so how would you say that we should go about, you know, assuming right now there's obviously a lot of craziness going on in our world. Um, but obviously there is this Renaissance happening. Hmm. Um, so how would you advise that we take this Renaissance movement and create lasting change that can be inherited for future generations? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, the, the first is to uh, reinstate the centrality of the family. Mm. That's essential. That's essential. I mean, if you, we can look at the state right now and say the state is a mess. The state has right. been co-opted by people who are essentially anti-human. Anti and depending on what church we're in, many churches are a mess as well. Not all, but many. But the one thing that we as in, in individual men have control over is a family. And yeah. if we can build order and structure and virtue and righteousness within a home and a relationship and pass those values on to kids um, and, in a really disciplined way, and that discipline begins with ourselves, Right. Yeah. To, to be a man and impose discipline on other people and not impose discipline on yourself is not to be a man. You are you have yeah. to be the example first. So I think it really begins with a family. And this is where my my men's mentorship really comes in is what I lay out for for the men that I work with is ultimately, I think, the desire that lives within most, if not every man's heart is the desire to provide for and, and lead a family. This is where movies like Fight yeah. Club, if you've seen the movie Fight Club, yeah. Fight Club was a great movie, but it, it, it told a lie fundamentally mm. about men. And the lie was, if you let men um, be men, they'll tear down society. 
Hmm. Now that's absolutely, and, and it's also similar to the movie American Psycho in the book, both of those, both of those books. Um, and the, the thing, it, it couldn't be further from the truth because what men actually do if given the chance is they get married and they have kids hmm. and um, to, to let men know that that desire is good and righteous and virtuous and beautiful and true. And to give them an understanding of if you're going to get married and have kids, here's what you need to be doing with your time, depending on what stage of life you're at. Uh, here's what you need to be doing with your time, your energy, your money, and your body to really prepare to do that for a lifetime. And I mean, all this knowledge, it's, it's used to be common knowledge, right. but it's, it's so far gone right now to just tell men that it's okay to want a wife and kids. It's okay to want to be a provider. It's okay yeah. to want to have your wife, you know, be a homemaker, not a housewife, but a homemaker. That's okay. And here is who here's who you need to be as a man to facilitate that for her. Passing this information on to men, it's like the lights go off. It's like, you know, come on, lights come on. Not that they go off, but right. you know, it's like a light goes off, right? It's like they've because it's it's laying out something that is true in their hearts that they've felt for a long time that I think is part of us but it's so far gone that it's, it's like this, it's like this rebirth where it's like, Oh, I, now I know who I am. And so um, I think that's where it starts for men and, and yeah. groups of men who have done that with each other can come together and form communities, can form churches and form much more, but it starts with the family and it starts with how the man begins living his life and understands that if you do what the world tells you, you can see what the world is going to give you. So don't listen to the world. Go this hmm. other way. <laughs> and it's not hard to imagine what you'll get in exchange. Yeah. Well, obviously, you're talking about something other than the world. So that would bring hmm. me to the conclusion of, well, what's that other thing which would make me, uh, you know, immediately think, okay, faith. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit more about your faith background. <laughs> how much time you got so I've, i have a very i have a very long faith story um a faith journey i was um, baptized in 2020 became christian but i was mm. born jewish like um, mm. and i was bar mitzvah and everything and i spent from that point 30 or so years um exploring all different world religions and spiritual and new age practices because i lived in the bay area as well so you name it from Jungian psychology to Buddhism and Hinduism and ayahuasca plant medicine and crystals and sound healing and, mm. you know, and, and hypnotherapies. I mean, I've traveled to 35 countries around the world and I've been to major religious festivals and did meditation retreats at the top of mountains. Like I've, I mean, I've done it I've, wow. and from a spiritual religious perspective, perspective, I'd really done it all. And, um, through a series of, I can't really call them coincidences, but a series of providential events, I, I found my way into the last, the last door, the one place I hadn't looked in, and uh, it had the answer to Christianity. It had, all, it had the answers to all the questions that I'd accumulated after thirty years of searching. I needed the thirty years to give me the questions so that Christianity could answer them. Wow, mm -hmm. wow! Even that incredibly, I'm sure, cliff note version. <laughs> Of yes. your of your story that that still um, sounds like an incredible journey. So you're fairly new to the faith overall, but it sounds like faith isn't necessarily a new concept to you. But right. but uh, understanding 
um, maybe where our, our redemption truly lies is. So how would you say that your newfound faith in Christ has shaped you as a man? What's funny about that is um, I found in Christianity, and I don't remember whether it happened before I got baptized or after. It was not. It was right in that time frame. But I started to realize that Christianity, as I started to understand different aspects of masculinity from my own experience and from my own reading, I began to notice either just before I got baptized or just after that it all lined up with the portrait of humanity that Christianity painted. Hmm. Fathers, leadership, you know, faith, um, uh, you know, spiritual spiritual headship, providership, caring for one woman, celibacy, chastity, right? Pre, uh, premarital, premarital chastity, I mean, um, and all these things. And I was like, because I had studied all these different world religions, and none of them really painted the same picture that Christianity hmm. did, particularly because. Christianity focuses so heavily on the importance of family that it that our lives here on earth matter. They matter profoundly versus Eastern religions that says, you know, uh, matter is all illusion, samsara, which is the which is the Buddhist idea. Um, and so once I started recognizing, excuse me, that all my masculinity studies mapped directly onto Christianity, it was just like, that's, I mean, these two things. Now, I've studied religion has been, it's been a 30 year pursuit and masculinity has been a 20 year pursuit. And to, so to see these two streams of my life flow together at this hmm. precise moment when the whole world is shut down and worldwide travel isn't a thing like it used to be, you know, and to have those, all these streams flow in together as a, as a profound gift that I'm experiencing. So they all reinforce each other and, and they make me, more of a more of the man that I'm meant to be than I've ever been before, and an enormous pain to people who disagree with me. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And we've talked we've talked a bit on this podcast before about um, about Christianity and and masculinity within the church. Mm. Um, you know, I mentioned before how John Eldridge uh, in in the intro I mentioned that he. He said that uh, he believes the church has hurt masculinity and raised up a generation of men who are dutiful, detached from their heart, and bored. So mm. do you agree with that assessment? I mean, I'm relatively new to the church, so but I would I would agree with what I've seen so far, yes, that there that there is a there is a sense of of men who have grown up in the church wondering what does it mean to be a man or not even asking the question to begin with. Right there's mm -hmm. a there's a sense in like what they've been passed th about masculinity through the church has been lacking in some way, and so there's a there's a there's a, a series of questions that aren't even being asked. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Yeah. So I mean, men are leaving the church in large numbers. Mm -hmm. At least that's what the st statistics show. Obviously, we can argue about the exact quantity, but why do you think that is? I mean they're not given the things that men need to thrive as uh, as beings so when we try to say that men and women are the same right what we end up doing is just turning men into women for the most part mm. because because um women uh, have said for the past 150 years uh, or so if not I mean more depending on how you look at it that um their experience of being around men is naturally oppressive 
right? right? That having to having to adapt it all to a man is oppressive. So what happens if you tear that all down? If you if you tear that all down, then men must accommodate to women. There's no such thing as gender is not a thing. There's no such thing as sex neutral. What you end up doing is just turning into something that appeals to women so they don't feel oppressed by the men. And so when you try to fit men into a framework that works for women, you have men losing their vitality and becoming that toxic masculinity, that form of it. And for men that have self-respect, you know, and they're not going to, they're not going to deal with that in their church. They just leave. They just leave because what are their options, right? They either, they either accept the neutered watered down version of themselves from the pulpit, right? Which they're not going to do, which their entire being rebels against, or they're going to stand up and start a ruckus. And what they'll experience in response is pushback from the pastor and the elders and the entire, I mean, let's be honest, the whisper network of the women at most churches, hmm. right? I'm, I'm aware of this, right? And so for a lot of men, they don't have the stomach for that fight. And so they just leave. And, hmm. you know, it's not hard to understand why. If other people are getting fed by their, by their um, church experience, let them have that. I, I, I don't think a lot of men would be like, you know what I need to do? I need to break this church right now. Right. right. Why? I've got enough going on in my life. I'm, you know, I don't need, I don't need to fight this battle. So it makes mm -hmm. sense to me. Yeah. So how do you think churches can do a better job reaching out to men? I mean, they have to want to, mm -hmm. but I mean, you can't, the thing is, is you can't just say, we want to have more men here. What can we do? It's like, no, you need to radically reevaluate your doctrines towards masculinity radically. Yeah. Like that's, but most churches aren't going to do that. Because, mm. because they, um, because they're not now, look, I can't, I, I, I go to a amazing church in Mesa and Apologia with Jeff Durbin and James White. So yeah. I'm only relaying what I've heard from other churches. So not, this is not my church, but what I've right. heard from other churches is churches are actually run by the pastor's wife. Right. Mm. And so as long as it's run by the pastor's wife, why does the pastor's wife care if there are men in the church? Right. Why do I mean, she mm. doesn't. Right. Like, because if there were actually men, strong men in the church, they might actually start building a masculine culture within the church that challenges the implicit notions of feminism that have taken over uh, not just American Christianity, but America. And that's going to be a lot of friction. So mm. a church has to actually actively want to masculinize itself to come into alignment with biblical and Christian mm -hmm. principles, not biblical principles, because that's a whole thing, but Christian principles, very different. Right. If a church wants to do that, they'll be successful at it. But my read is that not a lot of churches actually actually want to do that. Hmm. Um, and, you know, so a lot of men are looking at like, how can I start my own? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of, I guess, to, to get more practical on that subject, what kind of, um, like action items would, would you say a church should take? Is that like more, you know, men camp, you know, is, is that going to be more, um, you know, specific outreach activities or is it something mm. a lot deeper than that? If they actually want to sincerely begin attracting men. Right. Well, the first and the easiest thing to do again, this is, you know, this is just what I've heard about other churches. Cause I go to an excellent church is, excuse me, to being changing the music. That there, are, uh, there are two kinds of songs, and and that they have um, they have names. One is a hymn, and the other is, I don't know, something else. That's a hymn, and it's something else. It's actually a technical term. One t one kind of song is a song to Jesus, and the other kind of song is a song about Jesus. 
So the songs mm. to Jesus and God are very relational. Like that's the kind of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff that you might have heard of. It's, you know, Jesus come into my heart, those mm. those kind of songs. Right. Those are like singing to person to person appeals to women because women are very relational by nature. Now, him, now the songs that are about Jesus are more hierarchical, right? Descri mm. Descriptions of, of God, of Jesus, that appeals to men. So the first mm. and the easiest thing that churches can do is singing more songs about Jesus and about God. And that those kind of songs will appeal more to men than the kind of songs that say, Jesus, I love you and, and things like that. Men won't feel comfortable saying those songs because they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't, they probably wouldn't say it to their fellow brother. They, they definitely don't want to sing it. So that's, and some of these ideas come from the book, um, Muscular Christianity by Brett McKay from The Art of Manliness. That's a great mm -hmm. book. There was a movement in the first half of the 20th century called Muscular Christianity um, that was propagated by um, Teddy Roosevelt, I think. And it was, it was, mm -hmm. a, it was as the title said, it was focused on manly virtues within, within Christianity. And so um, I would recommend anyone listening to read that book to get a sense of what a really manly church would look like and how churches can serve men. But it, begin, it can begin with the music. I think men camp, it depends on what you do. I think right. men's, men's um, men only groups would be good. Like men, um, men's ministry groups, I think it'd be good and really get into the, get into the, the details about what, men specifically need support with in their lives because men face different challenges from women. I think somewhere in there is a good place to start. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and do, um, do expositional preaching on the book of Proverbs. That'll be another one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, man, there's so much there and I, mm. I know that we're already, we're already getting to the end of our conversation here. So we'll definitely have to do at least a part two, if not part three, four, five, and however long I can abuse you for. So, <laughs> but uh, my podcast go up to five hours. You can have me for a while. Uh, perfect. There we go. Well, <laughs> you, you have many conversations to, to go off of that with a lot of interesting guests. And, um, you know, I know that you've had a wide range of different, um, people on your podcast. So, um, are you beginning to see any positive trends starting to repeat within the conversations that you're having? Yes. I think some of the, some of the trends that, um, people are beginning to realize that there's a significant overlap between masculinity, Christianity, and Bitcoin. Those three subjects tend, hmm. are, are merging together in very, um, in very powerful ways. Um, I think people are starting also starting to realize that there is a wave building of conversation about masculinity that it's not just in isolated pockets that people are beginning to experience it in various aspects of their um, communities and families. Um, those would probably be the two biggest trends uh, off the top of my head. And then maybe actually I would say the third one is an increasing acceptance of men doing things like psychotherapy or inner self work, because for the men's movement for a very long time has been very focused on, uh, discipline and structured action in the world, the doing aspect of being a man, less mm. so on the being aspect of being a man. And the conversation seems to be balancing itself out in some positive ways towards let's talk about what men do and let's talk about what it means to actually be a man inside. Mm. That's awesome. Mm. So if you don't mind going a little later, of to, course, to, talk about something that I really wanted to make sure that we went into because you recently had a, a whole uh, whole Twitter thread on courage. You saw so, it, okay. 
I did. I did. And Winston Churchill, um, I wanted to go ahead and give you a Winston Churchill quote. He said the mm. following. He said, courage is rightly considered the foremost of the virtues for upon it, all others depend. Mm. He also said, without courage, all other virtues lose their meaning. So mm -hmm. what comes to mind when you hear those quotes? Well, I mean, without courage, any other virtue is meaningless because um, courage is a quality of mind. Gosh, I wish I could remember the exact definition that I used in my Twitter thread, but it, mm. it, it can meet danger or fear, danger or trouble without fear is essentially the definition that courage is a quality of mind that allows a man to meet danger or trouble without fear, right? Mm. So it doesn't matter how strong you are or how masterful you are or skillful or wealthy. None of those things matter. If at the moment when danger or trouble presents itself, you become afraid and you don't stand up. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many how your muscles. Doesn't matter even a little bit. It all it like because when when the when the chips are really down, when everything is really on the line, if you can't show up in the face of risk, it was all for nothing. And we can see this. I didn't put this in in the courage thread, but I suppose I could have. We see this in um, the Lord of the Rings, right? Mm. You would look at Aragorn. Or you know Gandalf and all these guys and think oh those are the those are the most significant characters and they are very significant, but all Frodo has as a character he doesn't have muscles he doesn't barely even has a sword, right he has a, he has a small little uh, like a Hobbit sized sword so it's a, it's a sword has a story, but it's not a giant broadsword it's not right. you know, <laughs> it's not um God what's the name of the sword anyway anyway it's not that it's it's not the sword that is reforged right? All he has is courage. And the entire, you know, success of, of the, of, of middle earth hinges on his courage and that's it. And so Winston, I would say Winston Churchill is, is, um, is very right that if a man lacks courage and, and what I talked about on the thread is plenty of men lack courage today. They mm -hmm. have money, they have status, they have success. You see all their faces and all their names all over the media all the time. But when the decisive moment shows up to show real courage, you just, they don't have it. But, yeah. but our media hides that fact from us. It yeah. hides, you know, and cause real courage isn't in doing the thing that you, that for me in doing the thing that you would find scary. So for example, like, if you might find it scary, maybe you don't, but you might find it scary to be on TV. So that would be courage for you to be on TV, right? Right. But someone who's more comfortable with being on TV doesn't require courage for them. The, right. the part that requires courage for them is the questioner asking them a hard truth and telling the hard truth and not shading the meaning. That's what would show courage for them. So each man has his different challenges of courage. And so in our hypermediated environment, we see lots of men that are doing things that might scare us, but are they doing the things that scare them? That's mm. the bigger question. And I, I would contend that they aren't because if we had more courageous men, maybe um, the world might be in a better spot today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how can men be more courageous? You have to practice. Mm. I mean, that's, and that, that was what I talked about in the thread is that really, you know, you don't want to test your courage by doing something that's absolutely terrifying, right? Because it's I think courage is like a muscle. So mm. you have to find things in your everyday life that um, you have to find danger or trouble in your everyday life. 
and, and expose yourself to it and to step up and do the hard thing. Now there's lots of different ways that that can show up. I mean, one of the, one of the ways um, is you can call someone and apologize for something like we all carry around things that we don't feel good about that we did or said in the past, pick up the phone and apologize. That's courage. Cause that's really risking danger. Sorry, not yeah. danger, trouble. Danger is an objective physical thing. I think trouble is like a social thing. Like you're in trouble. Hmm, so you can risk trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you can risk trouble by picking up the phone and you can train your courage muscle that way to really the, the challenge is danger because I don't know that there are any ways um, available now that it's really practical to experience real danger. Like you mm. can, you know, you can decide you're going to sleep in the forest naked overnight or something like that. Like that's kind of dangerous. Right. Like, but is it worth it? Right. Although I did have a discussion with a friend of mine that I think the most dangerous accessible thing that people can do is actually sailing. Sailing is like, if you, mm. if you do, maybe you don't have to do open ocean sailing like I've done in the past, but you know, if you learn to really sail and you go out quite a bit, quite a ways away from the shore, like you're just kind of out there and the ocean is not your friend. So I think right. sailing is a, is a good and complicated way to experience danger. That's, that's controllable. And so I, I, I've been trying to think of something else. Um, yeah. I mean, you don't have to do like free solo climbing. That's pretty crazy, but you know, yeah. Courage is often a choice too. And, you know, that's kind of what yeah. you're going with. You know, we can choose to be courageous, but uh, obviously finding practical baby steps to sort of strengthen that muscle is going to be key to seeing actual growth in terms of, uh, you know, uh, an individual's actual ability to face something that they're, they're nervous about or, you know, or worse terrified of. So mm -hmm. yeah, well, that's definitely something that we'll have to have to touch more on in a future conversation, but do you have any, yeah. any closing encouragement that you want to leave the the viewers with today? Yeah. I, I just would like them to, um, to think about how all the different things that we've talked about, uh, you and I've talked about are connected, you know, building more masculine churches, um, this whole notion of a Renaissance courage, right. Um, all these, all these ideas, they all, and in our current state of the world, all these ideas are, are very connected and uh and starting a family you know pushing back on the dogma that we've received in culture um, answering hard questions of faith and being able to being able to live by the answers they all these things all these things very much fit together and they all fit together in, into what it means to be a man not in any kind of philosophical sense though there is that but in in a sense of uh, an embodied sense like, no, this is what it means to be a man in the sense I'm, I'm doing it. Not I'm thinking about it, but I'm doing it. So just be thinking about all the different ways that these can fit together, um, uh, dear listener, uh, in your own life. Awesome. Well, Will, where can people find you if they want to keep up with you and everything that you're doing? You can find me at renofmen.com. That's my website. Um, you can find links to my podcast and all my social media pages at linktree slash renofmen. And if you head over to renofmen.com slash mentorship, you can see my brand new 12-week uh, men's mentorship page that I'm building right now. I'm very excited to share some of the success stories of my clients and share more about that um, side of what I do. Renofmen.com uh, slash mentorship. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Will. It was a great conversation. I look forward to having you back on in the near future to to talk through all the all the other stuff that we did not get to today but uh, really appreciate your time 
Me too, Connor. Thank you so much. I appreciate your listeners for going a little bit overboard uh, in terms of time as well. Absolutely. And we have been Forge and Anvil. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Feel free to go to forgeandanvil.locals.com if you'd like to support the show. Thanks so much.